Amen. Grace for every need. And that's what we talked about last night. Thank the Lord for that reminder in song. Okay, children, you can head on out. That's four years old up to about fourth grade. And uh, if you want your children to be involved in this, now is the time to head on out. And they're heading out with my wife for the children's meeting. And uh, I have to watch here as the week goes on because word gets out. We usually try to get a few adults that are trying to slip out. So, um, uh, but anyway, so it's good to... Uh, Good to see you stay here in the auditorium. And tonight, I want to deal with the subject matter. I'm going to use uh, a word that is one of those catch words. We're going to have to very much define it. I want to preach a message tonight that I'm going to entitle Legalism versus License. Legalism versus License. I could call the message Legalism, Liberty, or License. Now, unfortunately, the word legalism is often defined. People have different definitions. Probably the definition that nobody says it this way, but really is what people mean is legalism is anybody that's stricter than I am. That's generally what people think the definition is, okay? In other words, it's extremely subjective. It's just somebody that happens to be a little stricter than you think it ought to be, and it's easy to just put them with that brush and with that word. But I want us to look at it biblically tonight. What is a legalist? And then obviously on the other side, what is the issue of license? And I want to just look from the Word of God here tonight, and we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians. So if you'd go to the book of Galatians tonight, I'm not giving you a chapter and verse just yet, because we're going to preach through the entire book. I bet you've never had a preacher preach through the entire book of the Bible. So I'm going to promise you this, I'll promise you this, we will be done by tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, okay? And we'll get that thing done in 24 hours here. I remember that... I. Um, was uh, I don't teach much. I do a few classes at Baptist College of Ministry, evangelism skills and revival preaching, uh, but those are in block format. And I was going over to Kenya and the, uh, to preach an opening service for uh, the uh, Bible College there in Nairobi. And uh, uh, the director said, uh, while you're here, we'd like you to stay an extra week and teach a class. And I'm thinking, what am I going to teach? And I thought, well, let's do the book of Galatians. And so I, I got in book of Galatians and friends, I, I mean, I put a lot of work into that thing. I'm checking out all the language, you know, and all that kind of stuff, trying to put it all apart. And uh, as, as um, presented, of course, took several hours in a week to present the whole book. And, uh, but as I did so, uh, some things, you know, things began to click and some other work I'd done it, things just began to put together. So I'm just going to try to do a rocket ride through the book of Galatians tonight. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a flyover. My dad always said when he was uh, uh, leading a church and he did this many times, he said, you never buy a piece of property until you fly over it. And there's something about the aerial perspective that helps put everything in perspective. And I remember several years ago, I was flying into Midway Airport. Anybody know where that is? Midway Airport, Chicago. I was flying into Midway Airport and man alive, I came right over where I grew up. And I saw it down there, looked down, there was the Nabisco factory. I'm telling you, it was great growing up near a Nabisco factory. You could gain weight by breathing. Okay, but anyway, and flew over there, saw the Nabisco factory, saw the railroad yard, saw Booth Tarkington Elementary School, saw Marquette Park. We were just on the south side of that. And I'm telling you, it was amazing seeing all those pieces, but it was a little different from the air. And things looked a lot closer to the, than they've seemed on the ground. Get a different perspective from the air. So we're going to do a flyover of the book of Galatians. That's an evangelist thing. We don't have series. We don't have time to have series. Okay, so we're going to preach through the book here and give you an aerial perspective from this particular vantage point. And so in just a moment, let's begin here in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7 is what I would call the purpose statement of the book of Galatians. It's always important when you study a book of the Bible, what's the purpose statement? And often it is declared in a certain place, and this one makes it very clear what it's all about. 
Verse 6 of chapter 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, it's interesting in the book of Galatians, there is no commendation. Now, that's unusual for a Pauline epistle. Uh, I don't know about you, but you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, and you know what I get the idea? I oh, mean, those people are a bunch of rascals. You know what I'm talking about? My dad never took an easy church. But every church, he had a strategy. He would preach through 1 Corinthians because they said every problem in the church would get surfaced in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and yet, 1 Corinthians, there's a commendation for the Corinthian church. Did you know that? And there's no commendation for these churches in Galatia. You say, Why? Well, I'm telling you, friend, in Galatia, they had a problem, and the problem was with the central focus uh, of, uh, of Christianity, and that is the gospel. They got the gospel wrong. And so uh, Paul cuts, you can tell he's exercised, you can tell he's burdened, and I hope you'll catch the burden tonight, because I think we ought to be burdened as well. If Paul was burdened about the Galatian error, we ought to be burdened about it as well. And I'm telling you, friend, the Galatian error is a bad deal. It is a bad deal. And the Galatian error, don't miss this, is not primarily in salvation. It is primarily in the Christian life, sanctification. Now, if you know anything about theology, we know salvation, but the word sanctification is talking about the moment you get saved and the moment faith becomes sight and you go home to heaven. It's a Christian life. You say, how do you know the Galatians are primarily about the Christian life? Nine times he addresses them as brethren, brethren. In other words, he was not accusing these people of being lost he knew they were saved. They got saved, obviously, the Bible way, but they got off in their Christian life. And we're going to see how important this is that we don't get off on this particular issue. So I hope you'll catch the, the burden and the passion of the Apostle Paul here as he cuts right to the chase. Verse number 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed, here it is, from him that calleth you in the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. So the question I would have for the Apostle Paul is, okay, is it another gospel or not? He's saying, I've been called into another gospel, which is not another. Now, some of you know the word another is different in the Greek. The first word another is the Greek word heteros. The reason I mention that to you tonight is because we, we use it in English. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you believe in heterosexual marriage. Okay, you know what that means? It's a marriage between a man and a woman. But you know what the word heteros means? It means another, don't miss this, of a different kind. It basically is saying that men and women are different. Did you know that? Now, all the married people know it. Some of you singles don't haven't figured it out yet. I'm talking about how we think. Have you ever noticed that men think differently than women? Have you ever noticed that? All the married people said, amen, hallelujah, glory to God. Okay, but I'm telling you, let me help you out. Some of you ladies haven't figured your man out yet, so I'm going to help you out what a man's brain is like. Now, this is not original with me, but I, I thought this is so helpful. A man's brain is like a chest of drawers. It really is. And he is only in one drawer at a time, only one at a time. So every man has different kinds of drawers, but we all we have a food drawer. We all have that. We have a food drawer. We like the food drawer. We're usually in that about three or four or five times, a teenager six or seven times a day. Okay, so you got the food drawer. You probably have the fishing drawer. You have the killing Bambi's mother drawer. You know what I'm talking about. You might have your Michigan Wolverine drawer. I don't know what drawers you've got, but we all may. You might even have a Detroit Tigers drawer, maybe even a Detroit Lions drawer. And I would feel sorry for you if you had that drawer. But anyway, and you got all these drawers. And one of those drawers, dear ladies, I hate to tell you, has nothing in it. Absolutely nothing. 
Ever looked at your husband? He's blankly looking off into the distance like he, nothing's going on. And you look at him and you say, honey, what are, you think, what are you thinking about? And he looks at you blankly and kind of looks at you like nothing. He means it. He actually really means it. It's really true. Okay, so that's a man's brain. A woman's brain, you can, is not even close to that. Uh, you know, um, I, I would describe it this way. It's like a bowl of spaghetti, except the noodles aren't noodles, they're electricity, okay? Everything's connected to everything, okay? It's like if you want to use a computer analogy, men only have one window up at a time. Women have, I don't know how many windows up at the same time, and they keep filing through them. Okay, you see, men and women are different. This isn't a marriage seminar, but men and women are different. The word, obviously, heteros, helps with that. And, and Paul is saying here, listen, folks, you've gotten away to another gospel, which is different which is not another. It's a different word, and it means another of the same kind. So what Paul is saying is, you've gotten to another of a different kind of gospel, which is not another of the same kind. Okay, so what about this gospel? Now, obviously, this is a gospel that's affecting their Christian life. Because they got saved. They're saved. He calls them brethren. You'll see that. He argues even from their salvation experience and argues into their Christian life. And you'll see that in a moment. But... Um, but notice the rest of the verse helps us understand something about this false gospel, this heteros gospel, verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, and here it is, and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word perverse simply means to turn to the opposite. It means, uh, uh, it has the idea of to reverse. Now, have you ever noticed that opposites are kind of easy to detect? You ever notice that? Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, so we men aren't always the most observant people on planet Earth, but dear ladies, if you asked your husband to go into the kitchen and you had a, uh, you had a glass of iced tea and you had a, a hot tea, a cup of hot tea right next to it, and you asked your husband to go in and get the hot tea, he could probably do that. You know, opposites aren't too hard, are they? We all understand opposites, and the Bible is saying here, this gospel's not too hard to detect because it's opposite. In a moment, you'll see that. So with that understanding, let's move to chapter 2 and the last verse of chapter 2, and let's try to find out some of these opposites because um, we're going somewhere with this. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, the false gospel or the heteros gospel is what we're going to call legalism. Legalism is not a Bible word. The heteros gospel or the false gospel is. So we're going to assign that word, legalism, to the false gospel. Okay, so look, if you would please, at verse 21. I do not frustrate, here it is, the grace of God. We talked about that last night. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Uh, did you see an opposite there? You had the opposite of grace. What, what's that? It's a gift. You know what the law is? It's doing something to earn. Those are opposites. Earning and a gift are opposites. Okay, now go to verse number 2. Now, in chapter number 3, Paul turns to the, uh, the Galatian believers, and he begins to argue from their salvation experience into the Christian life. Now, I won't read verse number 1 right now, but we'll start reading in verse number 2, and I'm going to ask you to do something tonight, and that is answer Paul's questions. Would you do that tonight out loud? Would you answer Paul's questions? Okay, here it is. He says, this is only what I learn of you. Do you catch his, his, his burden here? This is only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you get saved? Works of the law or hearing of faith? Okay, that was good. Are you so foolish? Don't answer that one. Next one. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Okay, think about it for a moment. Having begun in the Spirit, talking about that's how you got saved, by the Holy Spirit's power regenerating you. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh in your Christian life? And the answer is no. 
In other words, friends, it's like this. You got saved by faith, trusting the Holy Spirit, trusting Jesus to do what you could not do. And he's saying now to them, are you now made perfect by the flesh? The very thing you didn't trust to keep you out of hell, now you're going to trust it to keep you out of sin? He said that didn't make sense. Now, you want to see something here, and I just want you to understand this. This over uh, this false gospel, this legalism, we're going to call it, the main issue that Paul's getting to is this. Legalism is, do you see this? Flesh dependence. Flesh dependence. Now, I'm going to ask the dear people on this side tonight to help me be the legalist tonight. Would you do that? We're just pretending. I'm not accusing anybody. So you're just going to help me be the legalist. You really ought to be do this well because legalists really do. Do it well. So I'm going to simply say legalism is, and I want you to say, flesh dependence. Can you do that tonight? Just a moment. Okay, so let's try it out. Legalism is? Well, they got it. They can have a little more fervor about it, but let's try it one more time. Here it is. Legalism is? That was better, better. That's a little more legalistic. That was good. Okay, so here it is. It's flesh dependence. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want you to see very clearly that's what Paul's dealing with. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, Salvation. Let's just ask ourselves, when somebody gets saved, uh, or let me put it this way, somebody's seeking salvation. Okay, you know, seeking sinner. Sometimes you come across a seeking sinner. That's always a blessing. Here's a seeking sinner. How much self-dependence or flesh dependence can a seeking sinner have before he can't get saved? It's just too much flesh dependence. So how much? How much flesh dependence can a seeking sinner have before he can't get saved? Just too much. And the answer is he can't have any. Okay, so how much self-dependence can a seeking saint have who's sick of defeat and wants victory? So how much self-dependence can a seeking saint have who really wants to have the victory in his Christian life? How much self-dependence can he have before he won't have victory, he'll be defeated? How much self-dependence? And the answer is, he can't have any. Now, let me just say this, friends. Any amount of flesh dependence throws you into legalism. So legalism is... Flesh dependence. You say, what's that? Well, it'd be like the person who's trusting themselves to get to heaven. I got to be good enough to get to heaven. You ever witnessed anybody who thought that? Man, everybody, a lot of people do. That's a perfect example of a salvation legalist. But we're talking about the Christian life. So, uh, so hopefully that'll let's try it again here. Legalism is? Okay, I'm going to keep on your toes here, so be ready on that. Okay, it's flesh dependence. Now, let's move to the other side of the equation. Go to Galatians chapter number 5. And now everybody's pumped up because there's only six chapters in Galatians. You're thinking, man, we're moving through it. We're almost done. Don't get so hopeful. Okay, here it is. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse number 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, I'm not going to preach tonight on liberty, though God may lead us to deal with this. I'm going to make this the center aisle tonight. And I'm going to just say this, legalism is flesh dependence, and liberty is God dependence. Now, so liberty would be this. Liberty would be a Christian. Uh, How do I put it this way? Because the word liberty is misused as well. Liberty, my friend, is not the freedom and the liberty to do what you want to do. Liberty, Christian liberty that is, is the liberty and the freedom to do what he wants you to do. Okay, so it'd be like this. Uh, Let's imagine there's a teenager And they say, um, well, um, I'm going to be a good Christian, and I'm not going to dress like the world. Oh, I really wish I could. I wish I could dress like the world. But I'll be a good little Christian, and I won't dress like the world. That's not liberty. 
Liberty is not being conformed to the world, not loving the world, not dressing like a world that hates God and loving it. See, that's liberty. Liberty's not constraint. Liberty's not, I got to do this. Liberty's not, oh, what a bummer. I won't watch that movie, but oh, I really like to watch that movie. Everybody's watching it. I know it's got some cuss words. I know it's got some moral issues. And yeah, I know it's got a bad philosophy. Boy, oh, I really wish I could watch that movie, but I won't watch it. I'll be a good Christian. That's not Christian liberty. Liberty is not watching something that grieves the Holy Spirit and loving it. See, that's liberty. So you have to understand, liberty is really what the middle part is, and that's God dependence. Do you know that God doesn't want to sin? Did you know that? And when you're depending on Him, He can enable you not to want to sin either, okay? It's the supernatural part in the middle. Now, I'm not preaching on that tonight, but I want you to see that that liberty is the right L. Legalism is going to be one ditch, and this side we're going to come to in just a moment. Okay, so I just point that out. Now, let's go to verse number 13 of chapter 5, and we're going to see the other side. Look what it says. It says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. That could certainly tie in to what we dealt with in Sunday school men. Okay, make not a provision or a, a occasion for the flesh. Liberty doesn't do that. Now I want to ask you a question. If somebody in the name of liberty uses it to fuel their flesh and to indulge their flesh, is it true liberty? And the answer is no. Don't miss this. It's counterfeit. See, counterfeit uses the right word. It just changes the definition. Now, if you remember some of the words here, I didn't really point them out in chapter 3, probably should have. Uh, end of chapter 2, I pointed out the difference between grace and law, but we also saw the difference between flesh and spirit. They're opposites. And another opposite is faith and works. Okay, so the Bible tells us you can have liberty and you can redefine it in such a way that it's not liberty. What happens when somebody indulges their flesh? Don't miss this. They end up in bondage. They call it liberty, but it's not true liberty. It's counterfeit. Now, there are other words, good words, gospel words, that describe the true, the true gospel right here, the liberty road. Are there good words that people, the Bible tells us, people use and redefine them, misdefine them? And the answer is, yeah. How about Grace. Does the Bible tell us anywhere that somebody might take grace and turn it to mean something that it's not? Does the Bible say that? <laughs> the grace of God turned to, anybody know? Lasciviousness. So if somebody's involved in lascivious behavior in the name of grace, is it grace? And the answer is no. It's counterfeit. How about the word faith? Does the Bible teach us that people could use faith in a way that is not biblical, and yet really be using the word faith? And the answer is absolutely. James chapter 2 says, If a man say he hath faith, and hath not works, and then it goes on his faith in vain. In other words, friends, somebody could use the word faith, but don't miss this. If they minimize obedience, it's not faith. Does that make sense? See, you can use the word grace, faith, liberty, and redefine them in such a way that is not what the Bible's talking about. That's what we'd call a counterfeit. Now, I've got a question for you tonight. Is a counterfeit easier to detect or an opposite? And the answer is opposite. Yeah, I could, I could pull out my wallet tonight, and I could look through here. I uh, think I've got it somewhere. Yeah, I could pull out this bill right here. Now, you're, 
you probably you you probably figure this out. Here it is. I could pull this out, and if I tried to uh, use this, and uh, let's say you had a place of business, and I tried to use this, you probably wouldn't take it. I'm not going to call it an opposite, but it's kind of close to an opposite. This is not American currency. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> you say, well, what currency is? Is it? It's Canadian. I mean, you can't even rip it. It's plastic. It's unbelievable. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, Canadian currency here. You say, why, preacher, why in the world would you carry Canadian currency? Why wouldn't you carry Canadian currency? If you go across the border, you can go to Tim Hortons. Okay, there it is. I'm going to carry Canadian currency. Okay, there it is. Now, if I had a counterfeit in this wallet, as far as I know, I don't. If I do, I'm in trouble. But if I have a counterfeit in this wallet, it'd be a whole lot more likely to pawn that off on somebody, right? See, a counterfeit's a lot harder to detect than an opposite. And I will tell you, friends, the opposite gospel is a whole lot easier to pick up on than the counterfeit gospel. So I'm going to call this license. Over here, you're going to be the license people. And I'm going to tell you, license is, and I want you to say flesh indulgence. Can you do that? Okay, so let's try it. License is? Flesh indulgence. Not too bad for flesh indulgent people. That's not too bad. Okay, so let's try one more time. License is? Flesh indulgence. Now, if you've got picked this up, of these three possibilities, both of these are what we might call ditches or errors. Remember years ago, I hate to tell this story, but you'll remember it, and that's the reason I tell you. I work with teenagers, so sometimes you'll have to just pardon that, because sometimes you, you think in a little different realm, but uh, trying to get them to remember stuff. But I had a friend of mine who was an airman who ended up being stationed in Korea, South Korea. And his, uh, his, evidently the airfield was right in the middle of rice fields, rice paddy fields. And, and he said uh, every once in a while the um, commander of the field there would uh, gather the airmen together and said, okay, airmen, he said, uh, he'd say, when you come in at night in the next few weeks, do not come in drunk and do not come in without a flashlight. You say, preacher, why did he say that? Well, this friend of mine said that pretty much the way in, if you were on foot, the way in, you had to walk through those rice fields and they'd have raised up sections with, that you could walk on in between the rice fields. He said there would be a certain time of year, I know this is gross, but this is what he told me, they use human waste to fertilize the rice fields. Now think about that the next time you eat rice, okay? That'll, that'll change your perspective, okay? But, uh, uh, but anyway... And uh, he said, every single time the commander told the airman, don't come in drunk, make sure you have a flashlight, because if you don't, you come on, you're going to regret it. He said, every single time, there'd be an airman that would regret it. (laughs) They'd go off that little ridge road, and they'd fall into one ditch or the other. Do you know what I put legalism and license at? They're ditches, except they're worse than what I just described. (laughs) And the Liberty Road is the road that keeps you going through what we might call the defilement or the mess of of these wrong thinking, these wrong theologies. So in just a moment, we're going to just continue to develop this, but I want you to see how important it is. Christian, let me just say this. At every point in our Christian lives, we're either in flesh dependence, we're either in God dependence, or we are in flesh indulgence. I don't think there's any other way you can live the Christian life, obviously, without other than those three possibilities. We're either in the ditch or we're on the narrow road, if we could have put that, the Christ road, the faith road, the God-dependent road, the liberty road, the true gospel road, however you want to frame it up. There's several ways we can do that. I'm trying to give you different angles on it tonight. You say, okay, preacher, I think I'm, I'm uh, picking this up. Well, let me just uh, say a few things here that might help us and uh, kind of put it all together, and hopefully this will be a help. 
I, I uh, have uh, been around for a few decades, and I know many of you in this room have been around a little bit longer than I have, but uh, my dad uh, was one of the early pioneers in the independent Baptist movement. Um, my dad was the first church in the state of Florida that left the denomination of his youth. I'll tell his story later tonight. But he left the denomination of his youth, and um, he uh, was the first church to do so in the state of Florida. And the independent movement, independent Baptist movement, was just beginning to get started. He was in the early days. I remember my dad telling me before he went to heaven, he said, Jim, in those early days, it was 40s, 50s, he said, we were nothing. He said, we had storefronts, we were mocked, we were made fun of, we didn't have anything. He said, the only thing the independent Baptist movement had in those early days was God. He said, we had all-night prayer meetings. Uh, we had a lot of prayer. I mean, we were out knocking on doors, trusting God. By the 1960s, the late 1960s and early 70s, did you know that the independent Baptist movement in 20 to 30 years became the top denomination in the United States uh, from an uh, evangelical standpoint? Did you know at one time, I think in late seven, or, um, early 70s, somewhere in there, the largest church in 24 of the 50 states was an independent Baptist church. Did you know that? It was a remarkable time. And for some of you that lived through it, you remember those times, don't you? I mean, it's nothing to go to a meeting and have 2,000 people there. It was just nothing. I mean, things were going on. It seemed like, man, we were just moving and God was on the move. You say, preacher, what happened? And that is a really good question. <laughs> what happened? Well, it's very hard to take a diverse movement like that and broad brush, but I'm going to just attempt to broad brush a little bit. You could disagree with me, and I wouldn't be bothered by that. I'm just going to give you my limited perspective. Well, I think a few things happened in the late 70s, early 80s that I believe sidetracked us. They were good things. They weren't bad things, things I'm actually for, but I'm afraid that maybe they got our emphasis away from where it should have been. Like I said, in those early days, we didn't, the movement didn't have anything, didn't have infrastructure, didn't have anything. But they didn't know how to depend on God and go out and knock on doors, like I said, and, and pray and, and see great things happen. But somewhere about in the 1970s, there was a certain president who got elected. And it kind of reminds me of this presidency, but I'm just throwing that out there. We're on live stream. I've got to be careful. And uh, I, mean, I mean, things started to look bad. I remember when he got elected, Christians were really bummed out. And uh, I believe a lot of Christians said, I, whatever we got to do, we got we to gotta get a good president in. And, and four years later, we elected a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan, 1980, into the office. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Ronald Reagan. He's probably my favorite president that's ever, I've ever experienced. He wasn't perfect. He had plenty of issues, and I could talk about his issues, and there's things that, where he hurt us. I get all that. But it was an exciting time. He got elected, you know. And, and here's what I think happened. I'm broad brushing again. I think people left their prayer closets to go out and elect Ronald Reagan. Now, I'm all for political involvement, but I will tell you, I'm for prayer more. <laughs> I think we should have been politically involved, but I think we shouldn't have left our prayer closets. Now, I'm overstating it, but I think somewhere along the line, we left, our, uh, we left the dynamics that we had uh, to, to, uh, to invest maybe in something that, that was not as productive. How about this? Same time, 1970s, guess what happened? Public education started going off a cliff, and we formed Christian schools. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm for political involvement. I'm for Christian schools. 
If you don't believe it, I have given the last 25 years of my life to Christian education. I'm in a Christian school almost every week of my life. I love Christian schools. I, uh, I really do. I thank God for them. But, uh, but I think in many cases, perhaps in the 70s, not in all cases, there are exceptions, no doubt about it. I feel like my dad was an exception. But I will say this, I think we left the prayer closet to start Christian schools. Now, I'm overstating it. I get this. But I'm saying this, friends. You know what happens when you leave your prayer closet? You know what happens when you no longer depend on prayer? I will tell you this. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. Prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. If you tell me, you know, preacher, I depend on God, and I were to ask you, tell me about your prayer life, and you would say, well, I really don't have one. I say, you don't depend on God. You cannot depend on God without it coming out in prayer. The only expression you and I have to depend on God is prayer. Like, God, I need you. That's prayer. <laughs> See? And I will tell you, friends, when you, when you leave prayer, uh, you're leaving dependence upon God. You know what happens when you leave dependence upon God? You have to depend on something. And so guess what you do? Suddenly you begin to move to depend on your flesh. I'm telling you, my friend, let's help you out now. Legalism is... I caught you. Let's try it again. Legalism is... Yeah, see, that's what happens. Get over to flesh dependence. And do you know what happens with flesh dependence? It doesn't work. You know, the Bible talks about trusting in horses and chariots. I want to ask you a question. Were horses and chariots morally wrong? And the answer is no. What was the problem is? They were trusting horses and chariots instead of trusting God. You say, preacher, what do you think about technology? Well, I think if you can use it in a church, use it. But here's my point. Don't trust it to do what only God can do. I'm all for nice buildings. I'm all for a great program. I'm all for all that kind of stuff. But here's my point. Don't trust that to do what only God can do. Don't trust horses and chariots. I'll tell you what, I, I, some of you younger, younger people need to understand something. I saw it when I was young as well. When you're young, you have a tendency to trust horses and chariots. As you get older, you become disillusioned with horses and chariots. And you say, you know what we need? We need divine intervention. We need God to step down on this thing. And so, here's what happens. When you get into flesh dependence, you come to an awareness that it, you're not, you can't do it. It's not working. And so what happens is, you have a tendency then to rebound over to flesh indulgence. Okay, let's call it out here. License is? Yeah, there it is. Now, let me illustrate this if I could, and hopefully this will help put it all together. Let's imagine uh, tonight, let's take that, uh, if we took that American flag and I put it right here. Let's imagine I go down the hallway, down to where my wife is doing the children's meeting, and she told me, man, those, uh, the boys down there, they're behaving, don't worry about this, but she said they are absolutely a ball of energy. You moms and dads probably know that. Okay, so we go find down there, find one of those boys, that's, they're behaving, by the way, I just don't want you to get upset with them, they're doing a good job. My wife's very proud of them, but she said they have got energy. Okay, and she channels it, she really does. Okay, so let's go down there, we find one of those energetic boys, and we bring him up here. And we got this flag here, and let's just put him in about five years old. And we got this flag here, and I tell that little five-year-old, I want you to jump and touch that American eagle. Now, I've done this illustration in Canada, and 
I've really asked them. I said, well, what do you have at the top of your flags? What do they have as top of flags in Canada? Hockey pucks? What do they put up there? I don't know. Maybe maple leaves? Okay. But anyway. And so, uh, uh, so anyway, we got an American Eagle. So we put it up here. And uh, we have this little five-year-old. Okay, I want you to jump and touch that eagle. So he jumps a few times, but he's not real close. So I figure he needs some encouragement. You know what I'm talking about? And so I get you chanting his name. We're all chanting his name. And maybe even some of you come up here and put some money on the table so that if he touches that thing, man, he'll get the money. The kid is pumped. And he keeps jumping and jumping and jumping. I want to ask you a serious question. Is there any time in the near future he's going to touch that eagle? And the answer is, I don't think so. Sooner or later, he's going to get a hold of the fact, I'm not touching that eagle. I don't care how much motivation we give him, how much money we motivate him with, how much cheering, it's not going to work. So what happens is we begin to see big tears well up in his eyes, and we're afraid he's going to go running out of the room back to the children's meeting, and we all feel bad. We just feel terrible. And so I take the flag, and I compromise the standard. And I drop it, and he comes over, touches the eagle, and we all cheer and all this kind of stuff. But we all know he didn't touch the eagle. We compromise the standard. But there is another option of what we could have done at that moment with those tears welled up in his eyes. There's something else I could have done. I could look out in the audience tonight looking for somebody, I'm telling you, who clearly works out. You know what I'm talking about? I was telling the kids today, all human beings are different letters of the alphabet. Have you ever noticed that? Some of, most of us are I's, some of us are O's. And a few are V's. Okay, so I'm looking for a V. You know what I'm talking about? I'm in a guy who works out, bulging biceps, bulging muscles. I'm really not seeing anybody tonight that even comes close. But anyway, and so I bring you up here, and this guy had uh, rippling muscles, and I bring him up here. Say this little five-year-old, you believe in so-and-so can lift you to touch that eagle? Big eyes, he looks up, you know, nods his head with a little effort. That weightlifter simply grabs up that little five-year-old, lifts him, and he touches the eagle. We didn't compromise the standard, did we? But a power that was not his own lifted him to do what he could never do unless that power lifted him to do it. Are you seeing it? That's the liberty road. You see, legalism is when we're trying to touch a standard we can never touch because without him we can do nothing. But I'm telling you, license is when we compromise the standard, and no longer is it where God put the standard. Now the human ability, the flesh, can actually do it because it's not God's standard. We've compromised it. And so now we touch the thing, and we just act like we've touched it, but we all know we compromised it so the flesh could do it. But my friend, the way God intended it is for the Holy Spirit to lift us and enable us to do what we could never do unless he enabled it to do, us to do it. The only problem with that illustration is God's power is not without us, it's in us. And Christ can lift us to do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. See, that's the three things. Now, hopefully, let me just give you one other thoughts here before I kind of wind it up. And hopefully you're getting a little bit of an idea here. But... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody, I certainly have, maybe a real conservative family in a church, and I'm all for, uh, I'm, I'm conservative, I get all that, but let's imagine you're a little nervous because they seem to be condescending and your, their spirit kind of bothers you a little bit, they're conservative, but you know, there's just some things, they don't handle some situations right, and condescending toward people, and, and you're a little nervous about it, and one day you notice that they leave the church, I've certainly seen this multiple times, and they go down to the loosey-goosey, come as you are, leave as you were church on the edge of town. You know what I'm talking about? And that's like they throw every conservative standard they had out the window. And you're thinking, what happened? Well, actually, I'll tell you what happened. They exchanged flesh dependence 
for flesh indulgence. I want to ask you a question. You think they moved really far. They didn't move far at all. They just moved from one form of flesh to another. Now, don't miss this. Flesh dependence always leads to flesh indulgence unless you meet Jesus. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the Christian life. I'm talking about Christian liberty. I'm talking about the liberty road. I'm talking about the road where Jesus strengthens you to do what you never thought you could do. He doesn't just give you the power to do it. He gives you the desire to do it. See, I'm telling you, my friend, flesh dependence always leads to flesh indulgence. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. While I was growing up, uh, I think God was doing some great things in the independent Baptist movement. Movement wasn't perfect, but slowly and surely, I would say if we had a problem back in the 60s and 70s, you know what it became? Flesh dependence. But I want to ask you in the 2020s, do you think the independent Baptist problem today is flesh dependence? And I will tell you this, not on your life. It's not the problem anymore. It might be every one, a few places. It might be. But it's not the major problem anymore. You say, preacher, what's the problem? I'm going to tell you what the problem is. Flesh indulgence. Today, I'm going to be honest with you. Back when I was a kid, there were certain things God's people in an independent Baptist church would never do. And I could go down the list. If you were an independent Baptist, you can almost count on the fact. Certain places you wouldn't go, certain movies you wouldn't watch, certain things you wouldn't do. I mean, you can go down the line, and you can say pretty much you would expect an independent Baptist pretty much to hold to those things. That's not true anymore. I'm telling you, it's not just not true in the independent Baptist movement. It's not true just about anywhere. I mean, people watch things. I'm, I'm astounded they watch. You say, why can you say that? Because the Bible standard says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? But that's God's standard. Oh, you can compromise the standard and set wicked thing before your eyes, and you can touch the compromised eagle, but don't fool yourself to think you're doing God's standard because it's not. (laughs) See, the point is, we have compromised so many things, we're in flesh indulgence now. And it's amazing today you have college students that get online and defend why they can do certain things. I'm telling you, it absolutely blows me away that people spend time to come up with apologetics of why they can do this. Fill in the blank. And some of them are very clear. You're thinking, man, that's a, that's a closed deal. The Bible's real clear on that. So we're now in a day of flesh indulgence. And may I say this carefully? It's killing us. Now, let me make a a, a kind of a a statement kind of wrapping up where we are, and then we'll make a very important point here at the end. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 brings the book of Galatians to, to a very important point, and here it is. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap, help me out now, corruption. It's like this, friends. You can be in flesh dependence. You can do what you, you can depend on yourselves to live the Christian life, but you will reap corruption. You can go over here, young people. You can do what you want to do. You can watch whatever you want to watch. You can jam on what you ever want to jam on. You can live any way you want. You can dress like the world. You can do that, but you mark my words, you will reap corruption. It doesn't matter if it's flesh dependence, and it doesn't matter if it's flesh indulgence. Both of them reap corruption. Do you see that? This summer, it was graphically illustrated. Graphically illustrated in the independent Baptist movement. Within a week or two, there was one situation from a very legalistic setting 
who was exposed for all kinds of moral filth, had legal ramifications. And at about the same time, a couple weeks later, there was a guy on the left side of the independent Baptist. I wouldn't even call him independent Baptist, but he would have. On the left side of the independent Baptist, who was calling prostitutes and all kinds of junk, had been going on for seven years. Half his staff knew. I mean, it's just a total disaster. Both of them were total disasters. One of them came from flesh dependence, and one of them came from flesh indulgence. And the point is, folks, it ought not shock us at all, because the Bible says flesh will always reap corruption. It always does. You'll have scandals on the conservative side. You'll have scandals on the liberal side, or the loose side, the progressive side. Why? Because wherever you've got flesh, you've got problems. And you and I in this room are not exempt. Because if we start sowing to the flesh, you will reap corruption. There's one thing nice about growing old. You know what that is? You kind of learn by life experience. And you know what I've learned? You don't get away with anything. You don't get away with anything. I want every young person in this room to understand something. You can leave the Canaanites in the land, but you'll wish the rest of your life you hadn't. There are dear people in this room that know the sins you didn't deal with in your teenage years, you really wish you had dealt with them in your teenage years. They end up being your Philistines the rest of your life. You don't get away with anything. There is no way you get away with anything. And I'm telling you, friends, for all of us, myself included, it's a stunning lesson. We look back and think, yeah, I didn't get away with that. You don't get away. Nobody does. So... uh, Say, okay, preacher, I think I'm getting it. I know this is pretty strong. I really think I'm getting this. So what's the answer? I know it's this road right here. So what's the answer? Well, okay, you want to know? Remember over here, flesh dependence, flesh indulgence. Well, what's the relation to the Christ walk, or what do you want to call it, the liberty road? Okay, look at verse 24 of chapter 5. Verse 24 of chapter 5. Okay, here it is. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh, with the affections and lusts. Um, I remember when I came to this verse of Scripture, I was expecting crucified the flesh to be in passive in voice. Now, some of you may not get this, but I'm just going to mention it quickly because some will. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, right here in the book of Galatians, is passive in voice. You know what that means? The moment you got saved, you may not have realized it, you were put in union with Jesus so that when Jesus was crucified, so were you. In other words, it's passive. In other words, you didn't know what was happening. You just got saved, and later on found, oh, wow, when I got saved, I was crucified with Christ. You see that? So I was kind of thinking this was going to be the same thing, but it's not. It's active. You know what that means? It's a decision that I make. I've got to crucify the flesh. And I believe when the Bible says, they that are Christ's, Because of the context here in chapter 5, talking about walking in the Spirit, it's a Christian life context. I don't believe it's talking about solely about salvation. I believe it's talking about somebody who says, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. They're surrendered. They're walking in dependence. They're walking in the Spirit. And the Bible says people who walk with Jesus, those that are surrendered and dependent upon Jesus Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now, this is what they call in the Greek language the aorist tense. I don't want to get too technical. It's the tense that's used most uh, for the most of the verbs. But it basically looks at the action as a whole. And if I was teaching you the Greek language, and I certainly would not be one to do that, but if I was teaching you it, there are different usages the aorist tense can have. This is interpretational. Good people disagree. But one of the usages of the aorist is what they call the constative. And if I were to show you the constative, you know what it would be? Dotted line. 
dotted line. In other words, that's my take on it. You know, I believe Galatians 5.24 is saying, those that walk with Jesus or surrender to his will, dependent on him, those that are Christ's, have a series of flesh crucifixions in their life. And I will tell you, friends, it doesn't matter how old you get, the flesh crucifixions continue. You say, well, preacher, how do you do that? God will show you. You don't have to go looking for fresh crucifixions. He'll bring them to you. But at that moment of crisis, you've got to make a decision. Am I going to crucify the flesh or grieve the Holy Spirit? Because there's no other options. And if you walk this road, I'm going to tell you right now, you will have a series, an unending series till you go to heaven of flesh crucifixions. I don't think there's, I've read over 100 biographies of men and women used of God. I don't think there's one Christian biography I've ever read where in that biography there was not several moments that were absolutely critical where they crucified the flesh. And it's why they were so greatly used of God. I, uh, my father was 14 years old, sitting in a movie theater on a Saturday afternoon. I don't think he, when he went to the movie theater that afternoon, he was going to realize that what was about to happen was defining for his life. Defining. Sitting in a movie theater in Miami, Florida on a Sunday afternoon, uh, it was like the Holy Spirit said, Wayne, what are you doing here? Now, you have to understand, my dad knew of nobody who would have a problem with the movie theater. And my dad looked around the movie theater and said, well, God, I'm here at the movie on Saturday afternoon. We, I always come every Saturday and going to watch the newsreels. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Going to watch the newsreels and watch the feature film. Some of you old enough to remember those days. I'm not, but anyway. And uh, uh, he said, and there's the preacher's kids and there's the deacon's kids. And there's, you know, there's some deacons. And, and his church was all scattered all around the theater. And he said, besides, Lord, today it's Sergeant York. Now, I've seen the old black and white of Sergeant York. That's what my dad saw that day. Best I can tell, nothing wrong with that film. Probably decent when it comes to a film. Most of us think of it as an oldie. And, and uh, you've probably seen the old black and white Sergeant York. That's what he's about to watch. And he said, well, God, he said, I'm about here. It's going to be a Christian movie. You're going to watch Sergeant York. And the Holy Spirit said to my dad, as clear as a bell to him, said, Wayne, the only problem is next week you will all be back. And it will not be Sergeant York. My dad had a light bulb moment because he'd been in that movie theater many times. He knew exactly what was going on. Next week, there'd be things on the screen he ought not see. And everybody would be back. My dad that day walked out of that movie theater. This is 1938. He looked up to the sky and he said, God, I'm going to make you promise. I'm never going back. That was 1938. My dad went to heaven in 1997. From that day to the day he went to heaven, he never stepped in a movie theater again. You say, well, preacher, I'm not thinking that's a big deal. Evidently, it was for him and for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) When my dad made that decision, he did not know of one person on planet Earth that thought it was wrong to go to the movie theater. Not one person. Not one. But that day when he walked out, he knew for him it was wrong. He didn't pass judgment on anybody else, but he knew for him it was wrong. His own mother, who was a godly woman, did not even take that position at that time. Later, she came to that position partially through my dad's influence. You say, well, preacher, 1938, the movies weren't that bad. Find yourself an old Sword of Lord publication called What's Wrong with the Movies, written by John R. Rice, and you'll notice that the copyright date is 1938. Read it, and you'll realize 
There was plenty wrong with the movies in 1938. It's a great little book. But um, I, you say, why'd you, you might ask me, why did you bring up that story? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I believe this with all my heart. If my dad had not crucified that flesh this day, that day, I wouldn't be here. I don't even think I'd exist. It was a miracle how my dad met my mom. He would never met my mom. I don't even think he'd have been in the ministry. That day, he probably didn't realize how much hinged on his crucifying the flesh. Well, that began many decisions. Uh, The big denominational school, you know, everybody's pushing him toward. My dad got a train, went up there, was in the state of Florida. um, And uh, um, I'm going to say the name Stetson University, probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, and uh, my dad uh, got on the train, was going to be a freshman at Stetson University. He said he walked into the dormitory room, took, looked around. He never even set his bags down, and he turned and walked out. Said, there's no way I'm going to that school to study for the ministry. It was one everybody was telling him to go to. There was fortunately a neighbor down the street that walked with God. And she said, well, tell him to go to this new little school over here called Bob Jones College. And I got an evangelist by the name of Bob Jones that runs the thing. And, and so my dad felt God wanted him to go up there. I was not where anybody went in the denomination. It's back way back in the day when they, they, uh, uh, they, they called him the, affectionately the old man. Bob Jones Sr. was running the school. And, and my dad went there and began to make all kinds of decisions to crucify the flesh. Under that preaching, that strong preaching. Well, he came back after his education and took a little church plant in his, the denomination of his youth. Took a little church plant and... Man, the thing just blew, just, just started to grow, just started to go. I mean, it was just a little handful of people. Before long, he had 150 people, most of them his converts, out knocking on doors, you know, and God working, built a building. I mean, it was just a remarkable thing. Don't ask so many stories I could tell about those early years. But uh, my dad, uh, every Monday, would go down to the denominational meetings, and every Monday he'd come back deeply grieved. Now, you might be out here and say, come on, preacher, what was the big deal about the denominational? Can I just give you one story? When my dad was in his uh, elementary or junior high years, his mother, my grandmother, walked up to the pastor of one of these denominational churches he was in and said, Pastor, could you tell me what you believe about the virgin birth? The pastor laughed, looked at my grandmother. Her name was Oma. It's kind of funny. That's the German word for grandmother. But anyway, looked at my uh, grandmother and said, Oma, we all know that Jesus was the son of a German soldier. Now, I'm telling you, my grandmother loved Jesus Christ. She didn't answer a word. She turned around, walked out of that church, and never came back. Found another denominational church that was orthodox. There were no independent churches. Took her family down there. And um, so, to kind of give you an idea, that's a problem. I don't know if you know that, but that's a problem. <laughs> And so that's the denomination my dad was in. We'd go to those denominational meetings and and the Holy Spirit would get grieved. And finally, he realized what God was telling him to do. You need to leave the denomination of your youth. Now, at this time, there was no come out movement. There were no independents. This had never been done yet. So uh, my dad believed it was God. So he educated his people. He announced to the church, okay, whatever the Constitution said, I think it was three weeks. She had to announce the meeting three weeks. We're going to vote about leaving this denomination. And he went through everything he was going to do. But my dad made one rookie mistake. He forgot to purge the rolls. This denomination is famous for having like six times as many people on the rolls as you actually have come to church on a Sunday morning. They're famous for it. My dad forgot to purge the rolls. 
So that denomination called my dad up, said, we'll ruin you. We will make sure you never preach in a church of any size. And man, the battle was on. They started calling up those people that never came to church. And my dad said, my little flock and myself, we quaked in fear. It was David and Goliath. They had the, all the, the money. They had everything. And, and it came, it looked like on that Wednesday night, it was going to be a huge battle. And, of course, they had the three weeks expire. And they were praying and trusting God for a miracle. On that Wednesday night, God has a sense of humor. You know what he did? He sent a hurricane. You can do that in Miami. <laughs> He sent a hurricane. Phone lines went down. Water was in the bottom of the church. The only dry spot was the second story auditorium and the educational wing bottom floor were all full of water. Phone lines went down. Nobody could communicate. It's hard for us to imagine today, isn't it? Nobody could communicate. Nobody knew if the meeting was on. My dad said that most of the people that were against pulling out, they figured, ah, oh, they'll never have that meeting. We're not going. But the people that were for pulling out said, we love our pastor. We're going to support him. We're going to get down there just in case. Some people had to get in their boats to get there. Some people put on their fishing waders. You know what I'm talking about? Came down in the meeting in their fishing waders. They uh, got up to that building and, and uh, went upstairs. And I've been to that uh, second story. To me, it's holy ground. They lit candles in the windows of that upper because they had no, all the phone lines were down. Of course, this is back before weather.com. Nobody knew the hurricane was going to hit until it kind of hit. And so uh, they put the, they put the uh, uh, candles in the windows and, and they met and they had just enough for a quorum. They needed 25. They had 27. They voted 26 to 1 to leave that denomination. The next day, the denomination said, foul ball, you can't count that meeting. And they took him to court. And I will tell you, the court said the meeting stands. It's legal. There's nothing illegal about it. And I will tell you, Goliath fell. Goliath fell. My dad told me, he said, when I was just a kid preacher, he said, when they said, you'll never preach a church in East Side, he said, I believed him. They said, you'll ruin you. He said, I thought I was just, I, that was, I, I thought that was it. But I remember right shortly before my dad died, I remember with deep emotion, he looked at me and said, Jim, he said, when I was a young man, he said, I thought leaving the denomination of my youth was going to ruin me. But he said, it did not ruin me. He said, it made me. You see, that's crucifying the flesh. I'm convinced I wouldn't be here tonight if my dad had not left the denomination. By that time, he was married. I might have existed, but I will tell you this. I, I would never have made it in a compromised church like that. I wouldn't have gone to the ministry. And I'm telling you, friends, when you and I crucify the flesh and get on the Jesus road, the God-dependent road, that's when God starts doing miracles. Because you know what happens when a corner of wheat falls into the ground and dies? It bears fruit. See, that's the crucified life. That's this road. And I'm going to just be dead honest with you. This generation knows very little about it. No offense, millennials. No offense, Gen Zers. I'm not against you. I've given my life. I minister to your generation more than anything. But one of my concerns about your generation is this. You do not know how to crucify the flesh. You write papers on apologetics on why you don't have to crucify the flesh. And may I say it to your generation, it is killing you. It's killing you. 
Because if you learn just to believe God enough to crucify the flesh, you get God on your side, you have no idea if this country could not be taken back by a group of young people that are all in for God. And I mean, aren't into flesh indulgence, aren't into flesh dependence, but are into God dependence. And my friend are going to crucify the flesh every time God tells them to. Because that's when God shows up. That's when God moves. And I can take you story after story after story of men and women who have God's hand on their life and they could show you their crucifixions. I'm with a dear pastor down in Florida. He said, man, I got saved in the Air Force. He said, one of the first things I remember doing is getting all my rock music collection, going to a burn barrel. And he said, I, you, some of you kids don't know. Well, this is around the country. You know what a burn barrel is. He said, I went out to that burn barrel and he said, I burned all my records. And here's what he said. I would not be in the ministry today if I had not burned those records. You know what he was doing? Crucifying the flesh. I remember I was preaching in the state of Wisconsin. A dear pastor got up, deeply emotional. He said, congregation, he said, I would not be in the ministry today if it was not for two decisions I made. He said, I got saved in junior high. My parents divorced thereafter. He said, I spent my Sundays with my dad. He said, my dad would pick me up after church. We'd go to a movie. And he said, uh, I'd miss church on Sunday night. He said, God began to deal with me. And I finally went to my dad and I said, Dad, I, I, I know I want to spend time with you, but I got to be in church Sunday night. He said, that was the first one. He said, the second one was this. He said, I began, we'd go down to the movie theater. He said, I began to, some, God's Holy Spirit began to be grieved as I'd watched some of those movies. He said, finally, I went to my dad and said, Dad, can we do something else? Uh, it's just hurting me spiritually. I can't, go, I can't go in there anymore. He said, those two decisions, I would not be your pastor. I would not be in the ministry if it was not for those two decisions. And every Christian in this room who has any semblance of the hand of God in your life, you can give a series of flesh crucifixions to. And some of them might not have been that long ago. And I will tell you, friend, as you're walking with Jesus, you know what Jesus does? That, you know, that's not helping you anymore. You need to stop listening to that. No, you better not go there anymore. You know, that friend of yours, he hurts you spiritually. You better deal with that. Are you with me, friends? See, that's where we're going. Legalism, liberty, or license. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Every head bowed, please, and every eye closed. I recognize you might be out here and say, Preacher, I, I don't understand that illustration about your dad in the movie theater. I don't understand that. Don't get hung up about the application. You may, God may not have dealt with you about those things, but he, he will deal with you about what you need to know. And you may not understand everybody else's journey, but you can understand when God's saying to you, that needs to go. Or you need to deal with that. Or you need to give that to the church. Or you need to do whatever. There's all kinds of ways you crucify the flesh. Your journey will be different than mine, different than my dad's, different than the pastor's illustrations I've given. But I will tell you this, you will have a journey. And the only journey only stops when you, stop, when you start pushing off the Holy Spirit and uh, grieving Him instead of crucifying the flesh. Heads bowed and eyes are closed. Would you just stand to your feet? Just stand to your feet, heads bowed and eyes closed.